And the most important thing is the output is in a language that everyone in an Exco C-suite in a board would inherently understand. It's financial based. People can understand probability. People can understand financial figures. I think the more we can align to those standards of practice, the better. Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of the Behave podcast. My name is Munya Hoto, and I'm the VP of Marketing here at CybeSafe. Today, I am delighted to host Ash Hunt, the global CISO at Apex Group. Ash, um, thank you for your time and welcome to the show. Thanks, Munya. It's good to be here. Super, super looking forward to this one, Ash. I, um, I have a million questions and I hope uh, we'll do the time justice. But first of all, it would be really interesting for our audience just to learn a little bit more about you. So why don't you take us on a bit of a journey of, you know, how do you end up as global CISO at Apex Group, first of all? And, and, and how did that career journey begin? Where did it begin? And how have you kind of um, navigated that path? Sure. So I don't think my entry into sort of defense and security writ large was uh, indicative of the typical CISO path, if there is one. I was actually uh, from a pretty young age playing jazz music professionally, was set to attend uh, Berkeley uh, in the States, Berkeley College of Music, and I was sort of on that path. And I really had just a few conversations with um, some people I knew who um, were working very hard in the military. And really piqued my interest and they kind of encouraged me to uh, latch onto some of the emerging trends and the emerging threats that were going to define defense and security in the next decade and beyond. And so I started really just as a self-taught researcher. I published my first paper when I was 18 and presented that at a UN conference that I represented the UK at. And that kind of acted almost like as a, uh, uh, you know, a snowball from there. After that, I began to take off, I began writing more and it's, it's actually Funny, I almost had a backwards career in information security where I started more at the policy strategic level and became more technical over time. And I'm now the most technical I've ever been in my career and, you know, continue to be like that. Uh, whereas typically a lot of uh, information security careers, you start off as a technician or as a SOC analyst or something like that, and, and, and you, you work your way out that way. So I was coming at it from, a, from, from definitely a much wider and broader angle. So I had some early roles in the Ministry of the Defense um, and the Cabinet Office, working on public policy advisory. And then I, I moved out of government into research. Uh, so I joined the Information Security Forum. And while I was there, I led two research briefs, the first of which was um, designing a new threat intelligence methodology for the industry. And the ISF was a brilliant uh, springboard and forum really to operate in because it was made up of all of the Forbes and FTSE organizations worldwide. I essentially was working and advising all the world's top CISOs. It was a brilliant learning curve for me. And for a researcher, it was probably also one of the best environments to actually stress test the efficacy of the things we were producing because we were working with those CISOs and implementing these kind of methodologies or solutions, if you want to call them that. After I finished that project, I then led a team designing um, the UK's first actuarial model for information risk technology risk. And this was probably, I would say, a sort of linchpin in my career. It was my first exposure to the really ineffective practices that are peddled in information security around how we measure risk and introduced me to the world of actuarial analysis, really igniting a passion to help um, understand how we as a profession could leverage those practices from, from other industries. And so I began um, a lot of work in uh, probability theory, stochastic modeling, uh, actuarial analysis, decision science, all wrapped around different measurement techniques um, for technology risk. 
And I then took that work into um, my, my roles afterwards, um, one of which was working for uh, State Street Bank and a great opportunity to not only really think of information security as a silo or sort of SecOps or anything like that, really focusing on the whole technology uh, environment from an availability, confidentiality, integrity perspective. It provided a much more expansive view of what information security really meant. And then I, I moved to become CISO of Sarn Group, which is a FITS 250 asset management company. There I was brought in to really build the function from scratch um, and expand its uh, scope. I'd had this backdrop then of all of these, I, I would argue sort of more forward leaning practices in some of these areas of information security that I could then begin truly applying carte blanche environment essentially from an information security standpoint. Sarn Group were then purchased by Apex Group, uh, where I took on the role as global CISO. At the moment, Apex Group is about 12,000 people. We have 3 trillion uh, assets under administration and management covering everything from fund administration um, right through to digital banking. We own the European Depository Bank and and, and even blockchain companies. Uh, so it's a very diverse financial service institution. My organization covers everything from identity privileged access, the internal global SOC, uh, tech risk controls, assurance, cloud security, all the, uh, all the good things that you would uh, want to be looking after, I guess. But again, really importantly is being able to continually stress test and apply a lot of the stuff that I did early on in my career, the research and the methodologies that I was developing and to fine tune them over time. And that's been probably the, the, the most, uh, I guess, enjoyable um, and meaningful part of my role as a global CISO at the moment, because I'm able to put actually a lot of the theory into practice, which is really where the, um, you kind of test its metal, uh, so to speak. Ash, that has to be one of the most fascinating kind of career journeys I've ever heard and, and does spur a, a number of questions. But I want to take us a backwards quite a bit and go back to you publishing your first paper at 18, you said. What was the title of that paper, first of all? Secondly, at 18, what did you know about this space and how were you you know, reliably informed to be able to form a point of view and present this paper to such an esteemed and global audience? Well, it sounds great when you say it like that. I can assure you that's not how it happened uh, at all. More than happy to take that description of it. But yeah, uh, as I said, back in 2011, 2012, cyber really wasn't a branded concept in, in, in anywhere near the angle that it is now. I really looked at it from more of a perspective, as I said, really on a nation state defense level. It became very, very apparent to me that the fifth domain cyber was going to cause a lot of issues, particularly around uh, national defense policy, not just within the United Kingdom, but across, across the world, particularly in the West, which kind of under the NATO structure is going to want to um, adhere to common law standards of practice and uh, not perhaps exploit that domain in the same way that other nation states may. And so my first paper was called Cyber, a Real and Present Danger. It focused on an acronym called TWESC, which stood for Terrorism, Warfare, Espionage, Sabotage, and Crime. And it was an attempt to, and I say that in its strongest sense, a very, very early attempt to begin offering up some suggested structure to the terms and definitions we were using in cybersecurity. The activity that we might experience under cyber sabotage is definitely going to be different to the um, sort of activity that we may define, define as cyber warfare, particularly when it comes to nation state policy. And to be honest, if anything, I think, or I'd li I like to think that the paper helped spur discussion in some of these key forums, 
I guess, pushing a debate around why we need to get serious if we're going to make legislation uh, and national policy on terms that everyone has a consistent understanding of what those terms mean and what the terms of engagement are going to be. And as I said, I was very, very, very fortunate by sheer luck. It got picked up by someone at the International Telecommunications Union as part of the UN. They were running a big tech cyber conference and invited me out to represent the UK and present the paper. Again, for me, that was a, obviously the best springboard, I guess, to a start of a career you could possibly ask for. But I think more than anything, because now that cyber is such a defined concept and profession and almost industry in and of itself, that wasn't as true back then. And so I guess the confidence of saying, well, I guess, you know, my, my thoughts as good as anyone else's, I'll, I'll give it a go. As a maybe plucky 18-year-old, I uh, went out there and presented it. And uh, yeah, I guess the rest is history. That is phenomenal um, and, and fascinating, I think. Um, in many ways, our audience is going to see as a bit of a clairvoyant, <laughs> looking into your crystal ball and 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 really predicting the fact that this the real and present danger at that time was a bit was going to become so fundamental to the way that we live our lives at the moment. And we'll come to that. But before we jump to all of that, you are the global CISO at Apex Group. What does that mean? What 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 do you what do what do you actually do every day? And and what are the day in the life of somebody that's this the global CEO of an organization managing three trillion uh, <laughs> across twelve thousand um, kind of uh, colleagues? What does that look like? And 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 how do you how do you make it to the end of the day? Well, I think any CEO will tell you there is no end to the day. It's a bit of a um, thankless job in that sense of being 24 7, 365. And that's not just true from a constant vigilance perspective, but more really because it's a global organization. As I said, we're in 95 countries. And uh, when one time zone switches off, the next switch is on. But obviously, I'm very fortunate with the least team of, as I said, around 30 today that they have a very geographical, globally geographical footprint. And uh, I have much smarter and more um, intelligent, uh, trustworthy people that I can rely on um, other than just myself. But (laughs) the reality is you get all sorts of different types of CSOs and they're they're molded in part, I think, by the environment in which they're operating. There's a community, I would say, of security leaders. There's a push for us to become really board level representatives. I guess the CSO or chief security officer would be the closest, largely because we're not answerable to no one, but it, it's we have to account for any uh, loss exposure across the business um, because the whole business runs on technology nowadays. If I, if I was to use sort of an umbrella wrapper, everything I'm doing on a day-to-day basis is related to technology risk in some form or another. Now on the day-to-day task, it can be really sending a lot of emails, I'm spending a lot of time in meetings. They're not really actually so much around responding to incidents or events. A lot of the time it can be, particularly for me, it's around setting a clear strategy, a strategic vision for the rest of the function to ensure that there's a common esprit de corps wrapped around all of my teams that they're operating um, effectively, happily, in a way that's supporting their career growth and their own objectives, as well as that of the business. And really, a lot of my task then falls into writing policy documentation, strategic documentation, reporting, communicating with a plethora of different stakeholder audiences, uh, a lot of the time actually external. So I would say the most important skill in cybersecurity today is writing, the ability to write well, and not enough of us do it. Uh, and I would say that's definitely the skill that's furnished me with the, with the most success uh, today, if I have any, 
um, because I can take the same message that cloud security engineer or one of my uh, L1 or L2 stock analysts might need, and I can contextualize that message in the same way for a CEO or for, for a client. In sum, I really see my role, I tell people this all the time, I'd rather I was called something like the you know revenue enablement officer. I see security there to, I see my job as helping the business to be as rich as possible, to make as much money as possible, to grow as much as possible. My job is not there to say no, and nor is that of my teams. Our job is to say, we recognize that requirement. Here are your different ways of going about achieving it. Some things will be riskier than others. And it's our job to provide that review so that when decisions are being taken, they're done so in an informed manner with a clear recognition of where the return on investment is going to sit for the business and what the impact will be on achieving those objectives going forward. And to recognize that mitigating loss before it happens, we're actually in turn generating revenue opportunity for the business. Ash, that, 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 that is extremely, first of all, forward thinking. And I like the idea of a revenue enablement officer. Um, you make a very good point about the fact that you are there to, in many ways, to safeguard the firm's technology infrastructure. Uh, a lot has been said about the fact that as a profession, as, 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 as an industry, security has become very good at safeguarding technology, but often overlooked the human aspect. And whether you're listening to Lance Spitzner or you're listening to Jinan Budge, we see this movement away from, um, you know, not, not movement away from, but, 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 but essentially a realization that technology has, is, is so well safeguarded that actually the threat actors have now decided to focus on the human aspect. And yet organizations have not always moved rapidly enough towards protecting the human. What's your take on that? And, 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 and how do you kind of uh, manage that that challenge in the context of the organization where you're leading this this particular function? So I have two views, one of which I think will maybe rub people up the wrong way and the other which I think is then maybe in a bit more of a, a forward-leaning bucket. The first is that I think technology controls are very poorly understood by our profession. I think they're, they're poorly defined. I don't think there's a lot of clarity around which operational and security processes in a business actually mitigate loss. I think a lot of people conflate things like running an audit committee once quarter as a control, uh, when it's really a governance mechanism. Um, it's not a preventative, detective, or corrective control against a threat event. I'm very much of the view that any control that's not minimum semi-automated, if not fully automated, is probably design ineffective against a threat event that it's trying to mitigate. And so therefore, when it comes to the human being in the you know, threat event chain, uh, kill chain, whatever you want to call it, I work to design our controls so that the human being can fail every time. I have a very good understanding of cognitive biases, heuristics, and, and the effects that they have on human performance and behavior. But then on the flip side, one of the key messages that I focused on in my career from quite an early stage was I always thought awareness was just useless. I never found any scientific validity that could support why telling people that something would make them alter the way they acted when faced in particular scenarios. And yeah, I say this as, as a pure sofa type scientist, right? You know, this is like, uh, I, I have no sort of qualification in this, but it became very clear to me and, and running security programs, it, it's also very, very clear. You can tell people to they're blue in the face or to you're blue in the face that they shouldn't click on particular types of emails. Um, but you and I both well know that these emails now you know, almost every phishing email is now looks like a spear phishing email at least five years ago. They're so, they're so well tailored. I think asking or putting that onus on them is just completely wrong. I wanted to get away from awareness as quickly as possible. And I believe that 
training was not really being, I felt it was being given lip service basically as a compliance-based exercise. It's very annual packaged, annual training, an annual update to the content. You run your people through it when they join, they recertify once a year. So I wanted to then look at taking particularly the work that I looked into around cognitive biases and heuristics and the risk modeling and thought, well, people are going to be subject to those traits inherently as individuals. Um, we need to find mechanisms that can help suppress them or um, alter their behavior in certain circumstances, accounting for the factors that are going to affect an individual when they're faced in, uh, with those circumstances. So for example, a phishing email that's got highly pressurized language in it, already contextualized to their own day-to-day -day business operations from an address that seems and sounds familiar. You know, so when you take all those factors in, we have to try and tailor the, the type of um, training that we're giving them so that they can act in a certain way. I was fortunate enough to uh, ha uh, have a, a friend who was working around behavior change uh, with the UK government at the time. So I got to see a lot of techniques and research of how behavior change around process in organizations was being executed by the government outside of technology and thought, well, maybe we can begin applying some of those into our own domain. Obviously there are things I still have to do from a compliance perspective, but there's better ways of doing those and also demonstrating to regulatory authorities and external audiences that this is a more effective and demonstrably effective way of, of reducing human risk. One of the things that we're looking at at the moment is not only quite bespoke content and gamification of that content, for example, we have different packages for privileged users. Um, we can deliver those training, that training content in um, different sizes, frequencies, um, tailoring for different um, audiences. That, you know, that's, that's one key aspect. The second is being able to really, if, if we are forced to do phishing simulations, and I know this is a bit of a sensitive topic amongst the community, but one of the things that we're focusing on, because we are very heavily regulated is randomizing those simulations to the greatest extent possible, uh, but also localizing them. You know, we're a very jurisdic geographically jurisdictional based business. So if I want to run a simulation in maybe let's say Asia or Japan, for example, for a particular amount of country, why are those simulations not leveraging local language? Why are they not leveraging local social media? And again, I, I, I say this as someone again, very reluctant to use that technique, but we, we were sort of forced to as a regulated business. But I think there are things that you can do with it to make it more meaningful. And that's definitely something that I'm focusing on. And then the final piece as well is trying to introduce as much nudge-based theory as possible. So I don't want the individuals in my organization thinking that it's a crank the handle compliance-based exercise that they have to go through training. I want them to recognize that we deploy training as a control to help them reduce um, risk or to reduce their, their role in, in, in the probable loss exposure that the business might experience around a risk scenario. Very much at the moment, looking at techniques of how we can detect risky behavior. My SIEM, for example, my XDR platform is very much set up around user entity behavior analytics as an example, um, but how we can detect risky uh, behavior, risky role profiles. And almost in real time, if we see someone, for example, exchanging a password in plain text on Teams, we can pick that up and get a very short, sharp bit of training content to that individual and be like, hey, we see you're trying to do this. That's against policy and the reason it's insecure. Have you thought about these other mechanisms which, with which you could share that secure, um, that secret, right? Or, or share that file with, with uh, another participant. And I think that's really the future, really, of the program for me because it, it will help people actually alter the way they interact with each other.
and with technology. Ash, we are extremely philosophically aligned on this, and 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 you know we genuinely believe that that is that is how the challenge should be should be approached here at CyberSafe, and 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 really glad to hear that both your your challenging kind of uh, comments about the fact that you know you know we're not managing some of the those um, technology controls as as effectively as possible, or maybe there are some misnomers around some compliance driven things uh, that are kind of masquerading as as as, as actual kind of um, technology uh, controls. We are living in the advent of generative AI and and as global CISO, I'm sure this is something that is weighing on your mind. Within the context of critical national infrastructure, geopolitics, and how you set policy, given kind of the rapid innovation that's going on in that space, what are your thoughts at the moment about the role that AI is going to play, not only from a threat perspective, but even from a behavioral intervention, content creation, nudge um, perspective, like what you just described? What, what are you thinking about, about, about AI? I kind of take truck with the concept of artificial intelligence because I don't even think it's the optimum outcome or objective or desire of anyone even involved in the technology. In terms of practical usage, I think there's probably very little desire for artificial intelligence. Our, our desire isn't to replicate the human being's ability to make a decision. What we really need to focus on is augmented intelligence. Where I see this technology having huge impact is helping to do all of the complex advanced correlation of data sources and factors that all pertain to a particular set of decisions and to basically tie all of those together, accounting for all of their interdependencies and to do so quickly and at scale. All of the tech, different technologies that kind of sit under the AI banner, machine learning pipelines to capture those data sources, whether it's using large language models, whether it's using you know, NLP, deep learning models even to, to kind of provide an enriched feedback model, uh, a kind of reinforcement architecture to the technology whereby it continuously pr improves over time around the decisions that it's influencing. That for me, it will be game changing. And it's interesting to watch the development of technology because it's not quite how it's developing at the moment. But I think if this technology is really going to reach its stretch potential, and I think it absolutely will do, I think where it will offer its greatest value is in the realm of decision science. I know there was an experiment conducted in the 1950s. I think it was a, it was a domestic experiment around um, cake, cake mix baking. And I think a company had developed a, a method or a process where you simply sort of added water, heated up, and, and you sort of ended up producing a cake. And they found that the participants in the experiment obsessively kept trying to add things like egg and milk and flour. And, and, I, and the kind of outcome of that was no matter how much automation you deliver, human beings have an innate instinct and desire to be involved as part of a decision-making process, uh, even if that's at the very, very end. But we like to have some modicum of control um, over a decision that we're executing, which is why I think the concept of artificial intelligence is, is almost the wrong descriptor for it. What we really want to be doing is saying, well, look, I've got some very complex decisions to make. It is very difficult to stress test whether we focus on ransomware mitigation over upgrading our entire server stack. There's very few mechanisms readily available, again, at scale and at pace. I think the generative AI piece will offer it so much value around loss optimization and focusing on helping people like me and, and my colleagues 
pick out which is the most optimum route forward around a particular set of decisions. Boy, oh boy, I, I genuinely wish we could carry on for another hour. That That is super, super interesting. And, and I like this idea of augmented intelligence. And I'm sure there's a paper coming soon if, if, if one hasn't already <laughs> been published. Um, finally, uh, Ash, um, you know, you're a board advisor and a lot of the people that you have to speak to um, are non-technical, non-security professionals that need to appreciate and understand the depth of what you just said. A lot of colleagues that listen to this show and sometimes that come on really struggle with how to communicate this notion of information risk, uh, risk quantification and prioritization around strategy, as you were saying, to non-technical audiences and even to non-technical users in the organization. What are your bits of advice as we conclude that you would give to those colleagues, those CISOs, those heads of information security, those heads of security awareness that are trying to escalate the kind of importance of these issues we're discussing and to get them to land in an effective way that means that actual decisions are made in their favor, they're well-funded, they're supported in their initiatives and their agendas. How, what would you say are some of the things you, 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 you know, some advice you would provide to, to, to colleagues? I think that the first exercise is conducting like a target audience analysis, you know, work out who you're speaking to, which stakeholder groups, they're all different, um, what motivates them, what interests them, which ways they like to ingest information, what's your and what's their desired outcome from receiving that information? Why are you doing it? It's again, it's one of the reasons why I've been so much reporting because it's done for compliance-based purposes and not to inform decision-making. And in my view, if I'm reporting something that's not affecting a decision, then it's an irrelevant um, insight. And I think that's a great starting point because what interests maybe a NED versus an ex-co member versus a domain owner or leader in a business versus an a engineering lead versus an analyst can be completely different, even if it's the same message. But then what they want out of it, what is going to drive for them going forward will be very different. All related, but, but, but you need to have the, uh, the arsenal um, of almost linguistic and communicative skills to alter the same data set, visualize it differently and communicate a message in a different way. So data storytelling, the concept of data storytelling is really important. You know, rather than just reporting a singular stat, report that piece of data with context, wrap that context around a, a story or a message that you're trying to get over to that audience. And the reason anyone will communicate is because they want something out of it, whether it's a response or whether it's a decision being made, supportive or non-supportive of your position. Uh, you need to understand all of these various things before you even get to actually communicating that information. So I think that's, that's, that's one big piece of advice and something that I continuously focus on as a CISO. The second is we are completely able to speak in a consistent and shared language with the rest of the business and always have been, but do not practice that at all for various reasons. One of which is definitely the, the kind of confirmation bias in our profession around, well, we've sort of always done it this way. Um, and we're, we've got a serious group sync, um, challenge, I think to our profession. So what are the things that you, what are the mechanisms that you really want to use to, to get these messages across in? And really most of them revolve around, well, there are things that can prevent this organization from achieving its objectives. And when I look at those things, sometimes they can be many, right? You can, there's a lot of potential things that can go wrong with the business. 
my job is to help work out out of the things that are relevant to preventing us from achieving those objectives, which of them are most probable to cause us the greatest amount of failure. Looking at how often bad stuff happens and within a range, how much damage it causes each time it does. And when you take that kind of bottom-up approach, mathematically aggregating those views is super straightforward. Uh, it's really quite easy. If you start doing the groundwork and say, okay, I've got 10 relevant scenarios, do all my modeling around my current loss profile. Then if I want to aggregate those scenarios, let's say they're all related to data and I want to call that data risk. Well, that's great. I can present that view to, to people. And the brilliant thing about it is, is it's extracting the value from uncertainty. So the, 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 you know, if I look today around where decisions are made, um, particularly in a risk-based manner, when we're communicating to stakeholders, it's, well, this is red, this is amber, this is green. Yeah, we've got 10 of each or whatever. And okay, the slider might be left to right. This one's a three, this one's a medium, you know. So what? It's, it's completely subjective value-based judgments. And there's enough psychological research over the last 50 years demonstrating that human beings cannot be trusted to make those kind of inferences and are routinely wrong. And this is still done today. Organizations like NASA run multiple risk methodologies against each other continuously on all of their decision-making to, to see it. And I can guarantee you the probabilistic models are the ones that will outperform uh, anything else. Comes back to my point around the feedback architecture. It helps give boards mechanisms to stress test their um, decision-making over time. So we're looking at our current loss profile today. Okay, it, we might have a lot of uncertainty around that. And it could be anything from you know, a 90% probability of losing more than, I don't know, $100 to $100 million. Okay, we don't know a lot about that scenario yet. But over time, you capture more data, you use more inputs, and so you gain precision into your already accurate modeling. That's a fantastic mechanism to be able to say, well, I've set up a process that will continuously improve. So the day that I was worst at doing that modeling was the day I started. And the most important thing is the output of those models is, is, is in a language that everyone in an exco c-suite uh, in a board would inherently understand it's financial based people can understand probability um people can understand financial figures and uh, i think the more we can align to those standards of practice the better and there's there's just so much value add for us to be doing that and it's a very transparent approach as well it removes all forms of debate and argument over what does a red mean how many times could a red occur etc it, it it really focuses people on saying well look this is what our loss exposure looks like today. This, these are the different types of uh, levels of what our loss, loss exposure could look like tomorrow based on different investment decisions. And here you go, pick one of these investment decisions that aligns with the amount of resource you've got available against your other demands in the business. We always have finite resource. We have to be choice about what we spend money on. And it's absolutely critical that we leverage, you know, constant techniques and ROI modeling to stress test actually are our investment decisions working for us. Ash, wow. Um, <laughs> honestly, thank you ever so much. Uh, but you have no idea how much value that's going to provide. And, I'm, and I'm, I'm genuinely going to have to beg you to come back and continue this conversation. To my audience, my guest today has been Ash Hunt, global CISO at Apex Group, and clearly a thought leader, clearly um, a visionary in terms of this space and the way that the industry is approaching the challenge, not just of technology, but also of human risk. Ash, thank you ever so much. And you know, what can I say? Wow. <laughs> Pleasure. Thanks so much, Munir. It's been great speaking with you. Awesome. See you again next time on this show, I hope.